From somewhere deep in the cloud and the corners of the earth, this is the Killing It Podcast with a focus on helping you make sense and dollars of all things IT with your hosts, Dave Sobel, Ryan Morris, and Carl Polichuk. Welcome to episode 121 of the Killing It podcast. This is Carl, joined as always by Dave and Ryan, and uh, we're just chugging the light up right along. Ryan's on the road. I got on on an airplane again, and everything was okay, right? You, You can do this in the world now if you have some basic common sense, but the world is cool. This is what I got to say is coming back out here to these places, even if you've been there before, go there again, make a trip plan. I I just came to Ann Arbor, Michigan, which I love, but uh, it's not the first time, but it's still fantastic. So my, my PSA for the week is, hey, everybody, let's get back out in the world safely. I got my first for this week. So when we're recording tonight, I'm going to go to my first movie since this all like Ooh. actually go to, see, like, go to the movie yeah. theater. And then the, my other first is on the weekend. Uh, so after you guys, if you're listening to this, it will have happened. I'm going to use the subway for the first time. So I will be using the Metro again, uh, <laughs> now, which, I think which that... is more, I think at this point is more a mental thing than a, than an actual, like, you know, I'm vaccinated. All yeah, that that one might be it's the mental bit of like the, the subways <laughs> regulated by the transportation authority, right? So you, Correct. you need a mask. I will need a mask. I will need a mask. I'm going to the ball game, so like I wanted, and and I've got to ride out, but I need to. It's easier to just hop on the train and head on in. So it's, but it's mental. It's all mental, and I will wear my. I have a actually because I'm going to the ball game. I have a Washington Nationals mask, so I will wear that to the <laughs> to the ball game. <laughs> See, but Ed, well, most I- of this getting back to normal is mental at this point. I mean, as long as you have a vaccine, wear a mask, do the basic things you can control. The rest of it is just psyching yourself up for it and being willing to go. And I think going to a game is a good enough reward to get oh, yourself on it. It'll be my second game, but first first back on the subway. So that's kind of a nice change. And I may actually be on a plane this year. I thought I might get away with it, with with not. But I, I'm in chats with a, with somebody to do an actual trade show. So I may. Very nice. May well, I haven't been announced yet, but it may happen. I finally got a report from the airline about mileage, and it and it didn't say you had zero miles in the last thirty days. So that was a good thing. Look at that. See, the the data is only interesting when it changes. When it's and, just and it, uh, it is interesting how quickly you get back on the horse and be like, okay, what do I have to do to get to silver? What do I have to do to get to gold? <laughs> right? It's mm-hmm. like, you know. We had a whole conversation the other day of, are loyalty programs even worth it anymore? And uh, uh, as a person with million miles on multiple airlines and and a million points on multiple hotels, I am presently, presently not convinced that those loyalty programs are worth it. So willing to take opinions and, and gather more evidence, but at this point, I ain't impressed with the added value they're offering. I am not chasing that anymore. That's I will enjoy the ones I have, but I'm not chasing anything new. So that's yeah, the, the not chasing, that's actually a major decision because it's sort of like either dedicate your life to it or you don't. Yes. Yep. It's, As we have said totally before, that. they own our souls. <laughs> well, let's not get too carried away. <laughs> no, let's not get too carried away. 
Well, this week we are brought to you by our friends at PCMatic. Think you know PCMatic? Think again. PCMatic is working with MSPs to deliver true zero trust, default deny, and point security, allowing only trusted applications and blocking all the rest. A lightweight, simple to deploy, and easy to manage approach to application allow listing. Layering a default deny approach provides MSPs of all sizes the ability to again focus on prevention, and PCMatic delivers this without impacting performance or efficiency. Find out more by visiting pcmatic.com MSP, and be sure to ask about their exclusive lead sharing programs for MSPs backed by a primetime national TV campaign. Alrighty. Well, our first topic today, we were, you know, we, we want to follow up on the discussion about RMMs and tools and so forth. And we've linked to a couple of articles. One is about uh, a company that's going to be presenting at the Black Hat Conference uh, in Vegas. And um, these researchers have, <clears throat> basically, they're going to present how they have uh, used uh, a tool called Jamf to do a similar kind of attack to the, what we saw with uh, Kaseya uh, on Macs uh, rather than Windows machines and you know basically demonstrate that they can do the same kind of stuff. And this has raised, even within our own community, um, a lot of discussion about, well, how much should we really rely on the RMM tool as a core piece of what we do? Um, our good friend, Amy Babinchek, says she doesn't really need an RMM. I'm a huge fan of RMM. Uh, Dave put out a, a video asking the question, is it time to drop your RMM altogether? Uh, and I have to say for me personally, this falls into the category of you get paid to do the hard things. And one of the hard things is to make sure that you are managing your RMM appropriately. Some of it has to do with picking the right tool, but some of it also has to do with securing your tools, securing your clients, and getting ready for the next attack, because there will be a next attack. So I'm, I look, I'll come in bold. I've, I've got an editorial out where I'm, I am saying, is it time to dar or dump your RMM? And I am I am very much in the pro of, yeah, most most should dump their RMM. Now, let me, let me say, like, and here's why I think that. I think your people are too cavalier around the idea of there is a God-level access program that has complete control over you, your customers, oh, and links you to all other customers as well if it's, because it's central, generally centralized to the same platform. And thus, your, your security is highly compromised. Now, this is a risk assessment. And I think one of the things that I'll say in this format that people, what has been interesting to me is to hear the blowback to me saying that, right? Because a lot of people are like, well, I can't possibly do it. And I'm like, well, you did it without it before. And I think right. you're pretty smart. You could do it without it. By the way, you did it without it when it was down. Like, <laughs> so, so like there's that too. But, but what, what this is all about is this is a risk management decision. People tell me all the time, like, well, I can't possibly not patch. Or what I've said is, we'll just turn automatic patching on. And what I will say here is, is like, look, if you say I have to control patching, it is more important than removing the RMM. What you're saying is, is I believe the risk of a failed patch is higher than the risk of a ransomware intrusion. I'll tell you for Dave, the calculus is the risk of a ransomware intrusion is way higher than the risk of a failed patch. That's my calculation on it. 
if you think you're smarter and can go forth, all I'll say is go forth and make money, man. Like, prove me wrong in the way you execute your business. I'll tell you, for me, the reason I'm bringing it up is I think the calculus has changed. See, and I believe that the calculus has changed in the format of a significant acceleration of a decision now that must be made. I grew up in this industry in the way back days of when we ran a marketing campaign, a certain network administration tool protocol back then, we ran a campaign that said, decommission your sneaker net. And what we meant by that was, used to be that in order to update all the machines that were on your network, you had to put on your sneakers, take your stack of three and a half inch floppies, and go from workstation to workstation to workstation, and physically insert those disks. And our utility allowed you to do batches and universal distribution of whatever you put into that thing. And I remember somebody in the security side of the business, not the network administration side of the business, being completely freaked out by that in 1994. Like they were completely <laughs> beside themselves way back then saying, you have no idea what bad actors could do if they had that God level access. To which the rest of the industry said, it is so much more convenient, we don't care. And they've kicked it down the road for a couple of decades. I don't think that it is responsible or sustainable for our industry to not answer this question anymore. Either you have God level access and you accept the liability for things that go wrong. And like Carl says, the hard work of doing advanced security protection or you say, I'm not willing to take that liability, you eliminate that God-level access, and you go back to doing a whole bunch of manual labor. At this point, I'm not sure there is a middle road, but I'm just saying you got to pick a side at this point because the industry has... Well, let me throw out, I'm going to throw out a vendor idea. Ven where's my vendor, or maybe there is, like I think of at least one, why can't I just have the monitoring? Like, right, like if, like, there, well, there's an architecture, I mean, right, it could... There are people who make a living just selling the monitoring, and then they do well, but, essentially break fix if you need. Right. Something. Oh, but but you could, but you, well, but you could do proactive services using a different yeah. set of tools or an isolated right. set of tools. Like I, 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 what I'm when I say dump your RMM, I could also could because I'm, <laughs> you could take that as is look, I'm going to take away the risk of this single integrated god thing, and I'm going to start breaking it apart in a way where I can give at least privilege and that I can be very, very controlled. And But I wanna have a monitor the monitor, right? So I'm gonna have a separate monitoring that all it can do was monitor. I remember my first version of managed services way back when was monitoring only because that was the all the technology did. We had put stuff right. that all it did was call home and told us what was up, what was down, where disk space was, and our reaction, our proactive service was, well, we got to go do something. Really? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, my first version of managed services in a month, I spell out how to do all this manually, and then you can save labor by getting an RMM. I will say, and we're almost out of time on this topic, but this is a great opportunity for somebody to disrupt the RMM market, to be able to say, you know, what does it look like to say, we're going to rely on Microsoft and Adobe and others to patch their own stuff, yep. but somehow manage that that didn't go wrong or 
allow scripting to go in and take out patches and reapply them after they're fixed and, you know, do all that. Yep. But have a, a system that's not always on, always monitored, uh, initiating control from the inside so it bypasses security and so Carl, forth. I'm on record with my 2021 predictions as one of my four predictions is that it will happen this year. I think I'm well on my way. <laughs> <laughs> You're halfway there. <laughs> yeah, I would, I would agree. I would agree, and the reason for that is, obviously, with different with different details in the exploit, there was Solar Winds, and then there was Kaseya, and now there is Jamf. And if you think that your platform, well, my RMM is different, and yours was exploitable, mine is different. I've done the due diligence to pick the special one. That's not safe, and that's a little bit irresponsible. Uh, I don't believe uh, either, Carl, you're correct, and we need somebody to come in and disrupt the space because everything is vulnerable, or we need to start hearing proactive statements from the existing vendors. Here is what I've done to ensure, A, that's not going to happen again, and B, what we can do to be proactive about it. So it, uh, it shucks is Shucks, we're out of time. time. i got to come back on that, but we'll, we'll do that next time. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we, uh, we will not be done with that topic, but we are going to jump into a second topic here. Something a little bit more lighthearted, but I believe equally timely. The, the article that we're going to link to talks about airless tires in a 3D printed autonomous shuttle application. Now, if our industry needs anything more that does not need one more of anything, it's another acronym. And yet here we are introducing a new one. NPT, non-pneumatic tires, and that does remind you of your spelling class when you were in elementary school. Pneumatic does start with a P. Uh, the, the idea here is a solid state apparatus that gets 3D printed, that is applied to transportation uh, applications, and eliminates the uptime downtime. Now, the question that we've posed to ourselves internally is, cool. Why didn't somebody figure out how to do that 120 years ago? And uh, I think we all know why. It's called planned obsolescence and the ability to sell you a replacement tire. But my question to you guys is, specific example here of this use case, and do you think it is viable for a solid state tire? And then second one, uh, moving into the broader category of what else could we manufacture and 3D print that doesn't need constant monitoring and repair. I just have to take a minute and and praise the acronym because the, the whole idea that pneumatic starts with a P and so it's an NPT. That's that, nice. I just love that. As a word guy, I love that. In terms of the tires themselves, I think it's kind of cool that we're moving in this direction. Now, notice a shuttle never goes 70 miles an hour on the freeway. So, so I don't know if these tires are going to be able to take over the rest of the world, but um, it's nice to see them doing something. Um, it's, it's interesting to me that I'm not quite sure the connection of putting this on a semi-autonomous vehicle or if that's like plays a role in any of this. Um, but it, it's interesting to see that this technology moves forward together rather than in isolated things. Well so I'm going to link this back to our previous story, and here's how I'm going to do it: <laughs> is that wow. this is this is a uh, change of market conditions. 
So you asked, why didn't this happen 20, 120 years ago? 120 years ago, one of the requirements was not sustainability. What, because because as, as when you were thinking about the creation of tires and how to solve the problem and how, what, how to make a wheel better, the use of rubber was, was viewed as the way to, to make sense. And it was air and it was about efficiency. It was, and sustainability was not a requirement. It just it just wasn't right. Like we see that in the technology choices made at the time, market conditions have changed, and thus a new calculus for the way problems are solved has been introduced. We now value sustainability. Climate is a thing, right? Where we are putting a price on those choices, and so tires of this style work differently. They are sustained differently. They have a, a different kind of track record and we're experimenting with new things because of the change in requirements. My takeaway here on this is, is like you cannot assume that the market is static and what always worked will continue to work because conditions do change. And so, uh, and you can even revisit solutions that may, from the past and say, you know, maybe I'm gonna pull to my past, maybe I'm gonna change something, but understand that requirements are dynamic. And that's well, and my what, what you're describing there, Dave, that is the essential working mechanism of the innovator's dilemma and the innovator's solution, right? If you're familiar with the concept of that line chart where once it was less functional and then in the future it becomes more functional, the question there is always against which critical factor for performance. If comfort was the critical factor, then there is one way to approach that. If you switch from comfort to durability, then the, the answer is different necessarily. If you switch from durability to sustainability, which again, Carl, as a word guy, you'll appreciate the very fine splitting of hairs in those two attributes, um, it, it requires a different approach. Now, for anybody who's ever, like I have, ridden on a bicycle that has non-pneumatic tires, it's nice to see that they've done tests on performance and durability and comfort because those things generally are, they're made out of rubber, but it's like riding on a rock. And so uh, if they can make these things pleasant and sustainable at the same time, solve for two factors, I think we might have something here. Well, remember also in that 120 years, we spent 60 of it landing things on other planets and trying to drive them around. So <laughs> there's been actually a lot of research in very difficult circumstances compared to tootling through Jacksonville and, you know, making sure you don't run anybody over. So there's that. <clears throat> I would also point out that, uh, as Dave was suggesting, once you start down the road of innovation, partnering with other innovators can help both of you test your stuff at the same time, right? Because you, you both come to it with certain promises and certain criteria and requirements, um, but then you can test your stuff together and see if maybe both things are going to work out. See, and now you, what you also have to anticipate here is the unintended consequences or the, uh, the anticipated but not intended consequences here. If I go to a solid state tire, then people who sell fix-a-flat are going to be a little disappointed in future market opportunities. But that same thing happens, right? I grew up in a world where we shifted from radio tubes to transistor to now newer technologies in audio and in radio communication technologies. 
Uh, yes, the quality got better. Yes, the manufacturability got better. But when we shifted from radio tubes to transistor radios, you know who didn't appreciate that? All those radio technicians out there who made a living on selling and installing radio tubes, which was very, very profitable. This is something also, to Dave's point, that's going to come down the road in our industry. New products come along that might eliminate the need for the middleman to perform a technical or professional service. Well, Better and some of those skills turn come back. Uh, so I'll laugh and go, COBOL programming, somewhat in demand, very small niche market. Right. But it, And then the other one is CRT repairs. For those of the, I'm a retro video game guy, like the people to fix those, those units are at a premium because the skill set is so small. Now, it's for a very small community, but there is this interesting factor of at some point those skills come back into very niche demands to solve very specific cases. Well, this is always people always talk about the buggy whip, right? <clears throat> that, you know, it is such a great example of something that it used to be that we always did something one way and then we switched to another thing and lots of people lost their jobs. But if you make buggy whips today, those are very expensive. Right. And and especially for people who do, you know, professional dressage and so forth. I mean, it's no longer a one dollar item that you get at the uh, mom and pop store. Right. So uh, some technologies never, ever, ever die. They just become expensive See, for a small that, group. Says a group, of, group. says a group of people who grew up with tape backup storage systems and exactly. uh, we continue to actually service and sell those things. Now that's sneakerware. Wow. <laughs> well, for that, let's let's move that on to our third topic and let's talk about the shorter work week experiment in Iceland. This got great coverage, both the BBC and CNBC covered this one. Uh, so the experiment in Iceland, they've been experimenting with the four day work week. Uh, they've done it at a government level. They've done some research around this to indicate that essentially they can move to a four-day work week. They are seeing a consistent level of productivity from their workers, particularly at, at, in the city council and the national government. Uh, and they're now looking at, at further potential rollouts for this because of the upside of this, the ability for downtime, the improved worker piece. And if you're not seeing a down in... Uh, productivity, then you can go, then you can move to this. Of course, the uh, the CNBC article is wonderfully uh, clickbaity, is that could the same become true in the U.S.? Um, and th this- No. Brings, <laughs> right, Carl's gonna go with no. I, I will freely admit, I'll, I'll kick this off by saying like, look, I've been covering new ways of work as a theme over on Business of Tech because I'm fascinated by the options, by the what I consider like the smorgasbord of reassembly that you can do to your business. There is an increase in the number of job listings of four-day work weeks as a benefit, but it still only accounts for like 2% of all job listing period. It's, some, it's right. a very, very small amount. I think this, my, I'll throw out there is I think this is a tool in the toolbox, not a, not something that we will see everywhere because there's a long list of options. So I want to agree with you and I'm a fan of the four day work week. I think that it is possible for the right jobs with the right people. I'm not a fan of this absurdity of taking research like this and then applying it to the United States of America. I mean, just be honest, Iceland has a population that's about half 
of Wyoming. Uh, it's all based, the entire economy is based around one set of hot springs. Their workforce is one-fifth of one percent of the size of the United States, and it is 100 percent homogenous, ethnically, religiously, right, on and on and on. Right? So this is not something where you can say, well, they're having success with those 12 people, so <laughs> let's right. apply. But I'm going to counter that. I'm going to counter that by saying, uh, for those of you that may not be aware, the U.S. federal government does a lot of this already. In summers, they moved <laughs> to a 5-4 style work week for most of the summer where well, they alternate. Many, many organizations and state agencies do a similar thing. So that's why I'm saying it. Like, I agree with the whole concept. I just this idea of taking this kind of research and applying it incorrectly just drives me insane. See, and um, I will say the the four day work week um, is something that many people have done for a long time, and it's completely possible for a small handful of jobs. It's it, certainly not going to work in manufacturing and some other things. Well, it it is possible for. Uh, for very many jobs with the right application and the right management or administration, right? And, and what I will say to kind of bridge the two opinions that you guys are bringing in here, I agree that we need more evidence that it can go broad with a large and diverse economy and different working styles and different job functions. There, there does need to be more study there, but I think this gives plenty of evidence that this is something worth studying. Right now, think about the current environment. We live in a world that is recovering from a pandemic economically as well as from a medical health perspective. We are in a growth market that apparently is difficult to hire people in, and yet individual experiences vary dramatically, right? there, For every business out there that says you can't find employees, I can't find workers, there's nobody out there and this is impossible, I'll point you to another business that says uh, we've hired 10 salespeople in the last 90 days and for each open requisition that we put out there, we got more than 50 applications for each position, not 50 for 10. We're talking 50 for each open headcount position. What's the difference? Well, I believe that the difference is a rigid adherence to the way things have always been done versus a willingness to experiment and look for new ways. Now, remote working was thrust upon the world in the last year and a half. Some people have taken to it. Other people have not. It's not always going to be a magic answer, but I believe it can be an answer. And there, there's times and places where you can do that. Four-day work week, similar category of things. Job sharing, similar category of things. My, my question is, where is it written in permanent stone that every job must be Monday through Friday, eight to five, with these definitions and boundaries and requirements? I don't think it's required that we have the same approach to where we work, how we work, and what we're doing. And I think it's very cool that there's some evidence. By the way, guys, I will observe that this story hit the U.S. media more than a full week after it hit other international media, right? It went around Europe. It went around Asia. It was covered globally a week before it made it to the media here in the U.S. 
Um, I don't think that's a surprise to Carl's point. <laughs> I think that well, it might be a little tougher to apply it here, but it's, it's an option. I'm so fascinated by the space because there's one other bit that we haven't touched on, which is this capability is generally enabled by technology. It's why I like talking about it so much is because I think this is the perfect combination of technology and culture and business skills that some that people that are savvy can go in and do the work of making it effective. That's why I like this is it is, you know, it is way beyond, I will make sure your systems back up. I will make sure your emails online. Like it is, it is, no, we're going to actually use technology and we're going to then help you with your people. And we're going to help you implement it and think about your business in a way where you can be competitively different, hire differently, work differently, bring top talent, that's where I get so excited about this because this is the interesting bit. And by the way, there isn't a single answer. The reason Carl's hundred percent right to go like, Oh, you can't apply this to the whole U S yeah. Cause it's just one small bit of this, right? Like, do you want to be more competitive to recruit more women? Because you know, right now there's pressures. If, if you're a woman in the, in the work floors, do you want to be competitive and worry about like, are you attracting younger workers who are having different requirements for whether or not they want to come back to the office for literally socialization? They want to meet people, right? Versus people that are established in their work via geography, where you may want to have different, uh, you know, lifestyles. Like there's so many pieces to combine the complexity is what makes it profitable. <laughs> well, and I mean, I, you know, in, in favor of the four hour, four day work week is the, uh, the whole concept that management should be results focused, not, you know, trading dollars for hours. Again, that doesn't apply to every job, but where it does apply, you know, let people go forth, produce the results for the amount of money you've both agreed on. And then who cares? when they do it, whether they want to take off two hours in the in the evening to spend time with their family and then go back to work and work more in the evening. Hey, as long as they get all their work done and it's of high quality results, that's what matters. See, I think you are now singing my song, Carl. That is where <laughs> I think the innovation and the competitive opportunity is. And, and to bring this back home to our audience, why are we telling you this story as a world full of business people who do technology for a living. Well, we conducted some research with a client of ours over the past four weeks, and we've been asking, what are your obstacles to growth? What are your obstacles to profit performance? And where are you focused for business improvement? And in a way that was not at all surprising to me, number one on that list was the difficulty to find and hire qualified people. Okay, to Dave's point earlier, the people are out there and the good ones really want to work for really good companies. And this is a space where our industry needs to learn to innovate because just being good at technology is no longer enough to attract the best technologists to come and work for you. So time for all of us to internalize and start getting creative with ways to attract employees. Yet another topic we will have to revisit. But for now, that pretty much does it for episode 121 of the Killing It Podcast. Thanks for tuning in to the Killing It Podcast. Please share with your friends and tell everyone to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and all the podcast places. Join us next week and help us keep killing it. <laughs>
in the technology business.